Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 75 movies, one cage. Today's movie is National Treasure, Book of Secrets from 2007. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And with us today we have our National Treasure expert, Melissa Lynham. Hello, Melissa. Hello. Back again for another National Treasure movie. Yay. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the downgrade in originality from the first to the second movie in the series, and I mean, we'll talk about it, at least in terms of what I was thinking, I'm sort of worried what the third one will be like, because this sort of seems like a control copy, control paste, and then just sort of replace declaration <laughs> with President of the United States. Yeah, they didn't do anything better, they just did the same thing slightly different. You had seen this before, and Mike, you had seen the second half of this, right? Yeah, I'd seen what I thought was the whole second half, but I had just seen the final 30 minutes, it turns out, when when they get into the mountain. It feels like I've seen this movie before, because Mm -hmm. I think I I watched the first one. Yeah, I got a little deja vu, but I kind of come to expect that from sequels. Maybe maybe not quite this much, but, you know, they, they, (laughs) they pull a few differences here, right? They go out of country, switch it up, up a little here and there. Mm-hmm. We'll get to it. I, I wasn't feeling a total downgrade. It's not like this is bad. It just it feels very similar. And I mm-hmm. think that it's not... I don't know that it's necessarily worse. In fact, it might... It could be maybe better if... like I'm not sure if like if this was the first movie in the series, I don't know if you know which would be better as a better first movie. I just think it's kind of interesting that we have essentially the whole team back together again with a new villain and a new supporting lead character as opposed to Ghost Rider which we're going to have a completely new cast and crew. So I wonder if that's going to feel as different as this feels similar. It probably will. This movie kind of is just meh. I would rather watch the first one again than have to watch this one again. It is the first sequel we're getting here at Cage Club, correct? Like the first truly official one. And, you know, you really have to kind of see the first one to get all the fun out of this, I felt. (laughs) But that's kind of what I, I liked about it. I guess because we talked about the first one that I was quite familiar with these people. And I liked where we picked up with them in the beginning. And I sort of like where everyone is coming from. And it's a whole sort of status quo readjustment here to, in a way, get us back to the beginning where they were in the first one. I think they do a good job of getting back to sort of square one, or not necessarily square one, but something resembling square Mm -hmm. one. I think that if you don't see the first movie, you really won't understand Riley's arc in this at all, because Riley is pretty much just like, everything he says or all like the jokes around his character kind of refer back to the first one about his red sports car, about how he wants the girl about how he's being sort of thrown aside, about how he has the one thing that he knows that saves the day, about him as a text sort of savior, savant. The story is different enough, but I feel like Riley's journey is like almost like the exact same identical thing. And like you said, if you didn't see the first one, I don't know that it would necessarily, not mean as much, but you wouldn't be able to enjoy it as much as you could if you'd seen the first one. You'd definitely be able to just dismiss his character. A lot easier in this movie if you didn't see the first one. It's got the familiarity that a sequel like Terminator 2 has to its original, but unlike this movie, you don't need to necessarily see Terminator 1 to get everything going on in T2. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. They, they fumble it a little bit in that they they want you to just be watching the first movie again in a weird way. I don't know, but I, I, I liked it. I feel like T2, it, it takes a lot of the same beats and a lot of the same situations and just like tries to pump them up even more. So one thing I want to talk about at the top here is that we talked a lot last episode or last National Treasure episode about how little Diane Kruger was given to do. Here I feel like I'm not sure that she's necessarily written better. She's just equally condescending to Cage. Like I don't think Cage <laughs> treats her any better 
I don't know that she necessarily has more to do. It just seems like everybody hates everybody in this movie, as opposed to everybody <laughs> just being annoyed with her. Like, it's not like she's stronger. She just sort of gives what she gets. Yeah, it's nonstop bickering for all couples in this movie. I feel like they kind of heard some complaints about her in the last time, and that's why maybe they start off separated in the beginning here. Like, I I was like, good for her, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm really glad she didn't put up with Ben just because he's a treasure hunter and all that kind of stuff. But sort of reconciliation and union and things like that become a theme, you know, with his dad and his mother and and their whole business. They're trying to to mirror that. But I also noticed this time around, maybe it's just in the way Diane Kruger is like playing it stronger, that Ben Gates is kind of this pushy, arrogant, kind of a dick, you know, and I didn't really see Mm -hmm. it the first movie, but I'm starting to see it now. And I don't think he's doing anything different. I just think it's like, I see it now. Maybe the theme went to his head. He's daring and sort of ballsy enough that, like, it works when he sneaks into that party out at Mount Vernon and introduces himself to the president. Like, the president knows who he is. He's this national icon who saved or found this lost treasure. So people know who he is. Like, maybe all that fame went to his head, and now he just, like, treats everybody in his life kind of like garbage. I mean, he's always been dismissive of Riley. He's been dismissive of Diane Kruger. But here it just seems like his flaws are more apparent. Yeah, I'm almost getting this weatherman type of vibe here where everything in his professional life, smooth talking the president, the cops in Paris, or working his way into situations he's good at, and like he comes across as like, okay, but then you see him interact in his personal life, and it's just like a total mess. <laughs> we'll get to it at the end when, we, when it actually comes up in the movie, but Mike, you were saying about how the relationship kind of between Cage and Diane Kruger kind of parallels his parents, John Voight and Helen Mirren. But first of all, side, side note, how did Cage save the day and then get kicked out of that house? Like, how does Diane Kruger get to live in that <laughs> massive house and Cage gets to move in back with his dad? That doesn't make any sense, does it? No. No, and it looked like a different house, too. I mean, granted, we only saw the front yard at the end of the first movie, but I was like, whoa, this is like a totally different house. Like, this is much bigger than the one at the first movie. And then I was like, maybe he's just like, ah, find another treasure someday. I really don't know. It's just, <laughs> just somehow she swindled her way, you know. She definitely deserved it. I'll, I'll give her that. You know, putting up with Ben earns her the Boston tea tables. My original point, before I got sidetracked by her, her <laughs> lucking into that house or whatever, at the end of this movie, there's a moment, much like in the first movie, where at the end of the first movie, Nicolas Cage kisses Diane Kruger in like this big moment, like right before the very end Right before, like, they find the treasure, he's about to get the treasure, he just got the girl, it didn't feel earned. In this movie, we have John Voight kiss Helen Mirren at the end, and it feels much better, I think. Like, I wasn't sure at first, but the more I think about it, I think, and I could be dissuaded, but I think that it works better. Like, it seems like there's more of an actual back and forth, and it seems like he did more to merit that kiss than Cage did in the first but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think Helen Mirren goes to kiss him. Like, she's the one starting it. Yeah, I just get much more chemistry between these two actors. They're on screen for far less time than Ben and Dr. Chase. And yet it seems that they have more emotion going on there. Like, in the few scenes they have together, each of them really seem to count. And I'm just getting a lot between... Maybe because they're very seasoned actors, right? And they can just do a lot with very little or make it come across... But yeah, they have like a nice little reconciliation throughout the film and, and, and a little bit of adventure scene toward the end. And it, and it all felt very nice and very earned, too. And, and it was good to see elder people kicking some ass, too. <laughs> yeah. So the last movie was sort of, it went all the way back to the revolution and it went even back further than that to Europe and everything. 
here we're more, our starting point is more recent. And by more recent, I mean the Civil War. And it starts five days after the Civil War on the night that Lincoln was assassinated. Nicholas Cage's great-great-grandfather, Thomas Gates, is sitting in like a pub, I guess, with his kid. He is given this notebook and given like a, a code to solve. While this is happening, Lincoln is being assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. And there's this whole cover-up or this whole drama dilemma that maybe Thomas Gates was involved. And so this whole movie, I'm I'm trying to decide if I like this movie's story as opposed to the first one. Like the first one, it was something that his family had been searching for hundreds of years. This, at the beginning of the movie, Ed Harris comes up and just like, hey, look, his great-great-grandfather was a murderer. He killed Lincoln. Cage is obviously very passionate about his lineage. But it's like, okay, let's solve this problem that just happened. You know, like, it seems like less of a a meaningful journey, maybe. I wasn't as invested at the beginning of this movie as I was in the first one. I think it's because there was such a long intro talking about how important Charlotte and all that stuff was in the beginning. This one, it's sort of like out of nowhere. Like, there's nothing about this in the first movie. Yeah, and it's sort of the opposite of the first movie where Cage and his family history was about that treasure. This is going to be Ed Harris's family history, right? This is sort of his treasure. He He's going to represent the South and the Confederacy and, and all that jazz. And, and it's sort of what I was expecting from the first movie with Sean Bean being from England, that he mm-hmm. would be looking for the treasure because like his family fought in the Confederacy and felt like they deserved it and stuff. And, and that's what they're really going to go for here. I was actually kind of surprised. I was like, whoa. <laughs> It's like my idea for the first one actually coming through. <laughs> I get interested. It's definitely like a weaker opening, but I still really love the way like all this looks. I- I'm blown away. No pun intended. They start with Lincoln's assassination here. Like yeah. I really couldn't kind of believe they were doing that in a way. But I guess enough times passed. Lincoln, the movie was released sort of a little later, but he was coming back in vogue around this time. I feel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even kidding. But yeah, it's definitely loose. They don't tie it to the Masons this time around right they don't it's just sort of this other entire thing that is part of the gates history that yeah it's just like oh by the way what i do really like and we were talking about in the first movie about what cage does as a career and i know this is sort of just a guest appearance but i was like oh he's indiana jones like this treasure hunter this guy who's a professor but obviously it, it seems like his dad is the professor and he's just giving a guest lecture? Is that, is that it? Or is he an actual professor? No, it was like a civilian heroes. I forget what it was. It was civilian something series. So his dad is the professor and he's just a regular dude. Gotcha. Yeah, it was the Civil War civilian heroes lecture. And I guess the Thomas Gates that got killed trying to decipher the Confederate code the night Lincoln was shot, like, <laughs> is what they were talking about. Yeah, I didn't really get the sense that that was his job. I, I kind of just got the sense that he was guest speaker and or that his dad got his name back and his recognition so he was the one lecturing the movie basically opens with him as indiana jones the beginning of not the beginning beginning but like really early on in raiders i don't know let me take it one step further because (laughs) i'm not even joking like it starts with the bruckheimer logo and then the tree and the highway fades into an actual shot of a dirt road and a tree in confederate times and it does the fade that indiana jones movies are famous for for transitioning the Paramount Rock logo into an actual mountain or rock in the film. 
for the opening shot of Indiana Jones movies. Mm. So I was like, wow, they even, <laughs> I'm not even sure if they're aware of it. Probably were. Maybe it was like a last minute thing, but I was definitely was aware of that right out, right <laughs> out of the gate. So Ed Harris is in the class listening to Cage speak and he says, look, and Ed Harris, you know, back from The Rock, I think that he's pretty great in this movie. I mean, he's nowhere near as good as he is in The Rock, but I'm totally okay with him in this movie. He's no Francis X. Hummel, but that'll do. He has like a page that Thomas Gates was deciphering this code and burned the journal, but they saved one page. So Ed Harris is like, look, I have the page. And they're like, look, it looks like it matches up. Excuse me. I have a question I'd like to ask. What do you think ever happened to that Booth Diary page that was pulled out of the fire? We may never know. Perhaps. Perhaps not. You see, I have one of those great great granddaddies just like you. Way up in my family tree named Silas Wilkinson. He used to tell a story about the night Lincoln was shot. As Silas tells it, Booth didn't seek out Thomas Gates regarding the treasure map that night. It was Thomas who called the meeting. A meeting to plan the assassination of Lincoln. How absurd. That's a lie. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you one of the missing pages from the infamous diary of John Wilkes Booth with the name Thomas Gates written on a list along with all the other killers. Basically, right, they, they need proof that they need to find out that Thomas must be innocent. We sort of have Cage and his dad's motivation, but we're like, where's Riley? And we cut to a Borders Books and Music, rest in peace, and Riley, <laughs> in his post-fame or post-treasure-hunting glory, has written a book and is all alone, basically looks like he's selling no books, and poor Riley, everybody's just confusing him with Nicolas Cage. Oh, wow. Is this a book about the Templar treasure? Yes, uh, it is about the Templar treasure, but it's also about other things, uh, conspiracy theories, urban legends, and other myths that are true. So, the author's here signing copies? I'm the author. You are? Yeah. See, uh, if you, uh, there's a picture of me right there. Uh, it's a pretty good picture. I thought that guy Benjamin Gates was the one that found the treasure. Well, yes, Ben uh, did, but I am the co-finder. Oh. Never heard of you. Oh. Poor Riley, he's always stuck as the goofy sidekick. <laughs> I felt so bad for him. And talk about Indiana Jones. He's wearing the tweed suit <laughs> and everything, right? Like he stepped out of the forties and stuff. I was like, Oh geez, like they're really going for it with it. and then his book cover, it's like him with a fedora hat and a leather jacket, yeah. like holding maybe holding a whip. I wasn't sure, but might as well be. I kinda like what they do how they reestablish his character though, that no one takes him seriously. They're like make sure that they set up uh Chekhov's book here, <laughs> you know. It's gonna be one of three books of secrets that tends to show up throughout this movie you know we got john wilkes booth's diary we have riley's book and then later we'll have the secret book of the president we'll just have the book yeah that was pretty cool and then you know money troubles for riley owes the irs lost his red sports car possibly scammed by bernie madoff i'm not sure we're sort of slowly assembling the crew back together it's kind of like getting together for one more job And then we find out that Diane Kruger, this is where we find out why Diane Kruger kicked Cage out. He says something along the lines of, oh, she said so too much. And I just couldn't handle it. Just like, bro, like, calm down. Like, that's not the end of the world. (laughs) And later in the movie, like, when they get back together, she says so. He's like, oh, I can't take you back. Like, it's like this payoff joke. It's just like, this woman is beautiful, intelligent, willing to go along with whatever crazy journey you're going on. Just, like, let her say so. It's okay. It's okay if she says that word. What happened with you and Abigail? I don't know, you know. I don't know. She started using the word so a lot. So? 
Yeah, like so. I guess my opinion doesn't matter. So, you seem to always know what's best. So, I guess I'm invisible. And now I've moved out, and we're dividing the furniture. And... Uh, women can't live with them, especially if they change the alarm codes. I wrote down all of the things that he was complaining, like, that she said so about. And it was like, his opinion's the only thing that matters. He always knows what's best. She feels invisible. And I was like, yes, I believe this. <laughs> I 100% believe this happened. And I can't believe they even got together in the first place. I'm, I was so happy they were broken up. It's pretty weird how the movie's trying to make Cage more likable with this kind of explanation as to why they broke up. And yet it does the amazing thing of making him less likable. <laughs> like, he's just sounding like more of a pig. And I'm like, good for Diane Kruger. I- I'm not even sure she's going to show up for this whole film. <laughs> you know, maybe they'll just get her at the end or something. But I-, I don't know. Like, ultimately, it was weird because it felt like they were trying to make him look good when in fact it made him look worse (laughs) and she's too busy going on dates with ty burrell who apparently works at the white house in some capacity enough clearance to be able to sneak them into the oval office a little bit later but she brings him back and like they're in her house and it's all just like like it's all played for comedic effect because this is a pg movie and kids are gonna like these awkward little moments but like she kicked cage out and then she's gone she's out for the night and she comes back and he's just in the house like boundaries man boundaries yeah she's not even that upset she's just like oh what are you doing here like she's a little mad but i mean if someone broke into your house got through your security system it seems like she's more mad that riley helped than cage is there it's like she expects that out of cage but like thought that riley might be on her side i don't know why anyone would assume riley is on their side they all treat him like shit Yeah, I don't understand why he needs to keep this all a secret from her either. It's like, maybe you can't wait till morning, but at least call first and explain yourself. I'm sure, you know, it'll be a lot better than getting caught, like, breaking and entering, right? I don't know. I mean, are they, are they on that bad of terms that, like, he needs to be sneaking around her? It doesn't seem so when they get caught. She almost, like, plays it off as sort of, like, it's just Ben being Ben, you know? I'll call you yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> What I did kind of like is that it's sort of a throwback to the first movie that he has to get back into her good graces, and instead of sending her a pin, he promises her these Boston tea tables. And so it's like she always needs to be bribed or convinced to help them out. It's easier to get her on their side this movie because she's already done it once, but she's still like, I'm not going to go along with another crazy adventure just because you think you have a treasure map. I'm going to need something in return. And they needed her ID so that they could get their hands on that john wilkes booth piece of paper right so that they could inspect it or something i wasn't exactly sure they mentioned something about something but i was kind of lost track of what they were even doing in i there. think they needed access to her lab okay. and so they could have just gone with her like they're okay to go in but they didn't think that she was going to go along with it so their way was just to steal her badge and like you know examine things hmm. i guess use her supercomputers to like look at hidden text on the back i don't know it just seems like she has super historian computers that are able to better read documents than normal computers. Yeah, they want to scan it with, like, infrared light and all this stuff. I was like, oh, so exactly what we did last time without the lemons. (laughs) Right, and it's like he had a whole clean room set up in his apartment to examine the Declaration of Independence, but I guess he needs to use her lab to examine 
the booth papers. I mean, that's okay. I don't mind. I mean, <laughs> we could go along with it. Uh, I'm still having fun. I like that when we scan the paper, it, it shows like what was sort of written on the other side. I guess that was like the big part of the clue that they get. They get the cipher, or they get the, the code that they have to decipher, and they have to find the cipher. And so they eventually figure out that the cipher is death, and they find out that it's La Boulet Lady which is the Statue of Liberty. Like, La Boulet was the guy who, I guess, designed the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. And so there's three different ones. But meanwhile, while they're doing this, we cut to Harvey Keitel, once again, bringing people back yes. to the first movie. Again, I like how he, how competent he is. He says, you know, why would this guy, Ed Harris, this antiquities dealer, why would he just give up this page and he can sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars? Like, what is he after? Yeah, and I love his reintroduction where where his two agents come in and he's like, you'll never guess what Ben did. And he's like, what, find Atlantis? <laughs> I was like, that would be amazing. Like, part three, right there. By the way, that female agent, the actress who plays her is Alicia Coppola? No relation at all, which is mind-blowing to me. Yeah, that is weird. That, I listened to the audio commentary and that came up. Kind of freaked me out. There's another actor connection later on when they're in London. One of the cops that stops them in the palace is the son of the man from the original Wicker Man. Weird. Yeah, and Cage played that character in the remake. So it's just some weird Cage connections happening. Weird, or like almost like a Jason Cage connections. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. Glad to see Keitel back again. You know, I'm glad. Like, if we're getting the gang back together, like we're bringing the tambourine player too right like no, <laughs> no musician is like too small for this band everybody's back everybody's here ready to go i'm assuming that the first movie was like i guess fun to shoot you know what i mean that there's a reason that everybody came back and it probably bump and pay like a nice payday there but it seems like they all they're all enjoying themselves on screen i feel and i feel like offset i don't know i mean i don't really know sort of i know you sent along a, a youtube link to me of like bloopers or gag reel it seems like everybody kind of enjoys one another, and maybe that's whether or not the characters have chemistry. I feel like the actors sort of enjoy being around one another. Yeah, one of the major things I got from the audio commentary, which is with the director and John Voight, they're sitting there watching the movie talking about it, and the one thing you really get the sense of is the fact that uh, it was like a real collaborative process, that everybody felt comfortable and at ease with each other and, and was there to really play and have fun, build off of each other's ideas. Part of that also came from the fact that there was no completed script when they started shooting this. So a lot of times they just had outlines for scenes or locations and and ideas of where scenes needed to go. You know, between shots, they would all kind of sit around and figure out who would say what. And and you just got this sense that everybody wanted to help everybody else make the best movie possible. I like it. I I think it, I sort of get the sense of like, hey, remember that like joke we had in the first movie? Like, wouldn't it be cool like to bring it up again here? And they just sort of build this, like, it, it does feel kind of like a world, right? That everything, they're all familiar with what's going on they're all familiar with not necessarily like the rules of the world but like who these people are and their standings in the world and sort of how people react to them and respond to them yeah and i think you know for however weak you know the story and everything might be at least these guys are there with that energy right from behind the scenes saying let's make this fun right let's just do this the best we can and have a good spirit behind it and i think if nothing else that definitely comes through and so they go to paris because there are apparently three statues of liberty which i did not know did you know or maybe i knew and i forgot it seemed like kind of a surprise to me and it's a surprise to riley too 
I knew there were two. I didn't know there was three. Yeah, I was not aware of that third one, but now there's four because there's the one in Vegas, too. So There is. <laughs> there's actually more than There's a bunch in Vegas. Uh, there's the one on the Strip. There's, I've, I've seen like two or three in Vegas. They're all over the place. Vegas loves its Statues of Liberty. <laughs> but they go to Paris, and Riley has a little drone, a little drone helicopter, and he's finding the inscription. That's when the cops come up, and Cage is able to, like Mikey was saying, smooth talk his way out of it. One guy, a descendant of the Wicker Man. They find out that the clue says, across the sea, these twins stand resolute to preserve what we're looking for. And Cage goes on this tangent that feels <laughs> so crazy and far-fetched yeah. that I was like, there is no way. Like, this almost has to be a false step or, you know, a, a dead end. He goes from this abstract clue in the span of about, like, 45 seconds, to knowing exactly what he's looking for and exactly where he needs to go next. Uh, across the sea, these twins stand... Um, determined? Uh, resolute. Resolute, yeah. To preserve what we are looking for. Uh, La Boulet, 1876. Six. <laughs> it's a clue. These twins stand resolute. Let's see. Resolute twins... Resolute. Resolute. And then twins. Siamese twins. Siam. Trade routes between France and Thailand. <laughs> That's ridiculous. HMS Resolute. A British ship that got lost in the Arctic in the 1800s. It was salvaged by American whalers. Then Congress sent it back to England. When the ship was finally retired, Queen Victoria had two desks made from its timbers. Voila! Resolute Twins. I wrote that in my notes. I said, are the clues getting more disconnected and desperate, or is it just me? <laughs> have I not, have I forgotten already what happened in the first movie? So I'm glad I wasn't going crazy. It's, it's real. And, and I'm definitely convinced by now, like I mentioned in the first National Treasure, I mean, this has to be sort of some kind of batman 1966 television show reference when like he would literally do this with the riddler clue would be so obtuse and obscure uh, he would just you know double talk his way into the answer somehow in, in a matter of a minute right and he would just like bounce these ideas off of robin and i feel like riley is ben's robin right and he's just like the river nile trade no not the trade routes like this no that's that's impossible oh there was another boat that got caught in in the arctic and the queen made two desks out of them and sent one to America. I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, whatever you need to do. I don't care. I just get the joke. Like, I get that this is a joke, but it also feels, I don't know. I'm thinking now about the end of Black Dynamite when they're figuring out the Anaconda malt liquor. I'm like, that's like the craziest, like, and what does that make you say? And it's just like, oh, like it's, it's so over the top and just like such a leap in judgment and common sense in logic that it just, how did you get there? And not only did he get there, but he gets there on the fly, not knowing what to expect right away. Like, first answer like talk about we were talking about the first movie like keep the pace going like here we don't waste any time like they're at the statue of liberty and then all of a sudden off to buckingham palace yeah I, it's so fast but i feel like this is the point when i was like i was getting bored i don't know <laughs> it felt fast but it also felt slow i got two things out of this one is 
Ben's incredible recall of all of his years of world history. <laughs> it is insane. The second thing is, I see why Abby might, might have left him, because like he's sort of like shushing Riley and the cops and stuff, and just like talking it out and doing it on his own, right? And like, I don't know, I got a little bit of that going on here. Like, yeah, you got the answer, but you're sort of being a jerk about it. <laughs> yeah, he loves having an audience. He doesn't like having like a partner. I feel like she might be the same way too, though, because later when they're in the Oval Office, Ty Burrell's like, like, oh, you know, every president but these three have sat at this desk. And she's like, oh, and Ford. He's like, no. But you can sort of see that in her brain. And and maybe this is like me combining this character with her character from the bridge, where I think she was like semi-autistic. Neither of them have social skills. They're so concerned with being right and memorizing history that they don't really care about offending other people. <laughs> see, I feel They like... don't want a part of it. They, they just want somebody to be like, oh, wow, like, you are really smart. Yeah. I feel like that's from living with Ben. That is called caused her to sort of argue her point more than she might have just relented in the past. (laughs) And they head off to Buckingham Palace, but in the meantime, and this is, I think, maybe my favorite element of the film, Ed Harris's goons show up at John Voight's house, and they knock him out, and they take his cell phone, and they clone it. So awesome. And my favorite part about this movie is just, like, how smart Ed Harris is, that Sean Bean in the first movie was like, okay, we gotta get here, we gotta figure this out, we gotta beat him to the punch. Ed Harris is like, guys, let's just kick back and just wait for him to solve things and sabotage him at the end. Like, why are we going to bust our asses? Let's just let him do all the work. And that's basically what they do the entire time. Yeah, he's a much, I would say, smarter than Sean Bean was. Not only does he clone the phone, but he also reaches out to Abigail and, like, overhears her conversations to get clues. He could tell that he was she was on the phone with Cage. Yeah, well, we're, we're dealing with, like, a mercenary here, apparently, right? Like, mm-hmm. Keitel does the background check on Ed Harris, and it's like, yeah, he's been to the Congo, he's been in Iraq, he's been, like, probably in Nam, right? Like, he's, like, essentially his character from The Rock, except, like, instead of taking over San Francisco, like, he went into black market arms dealing and, like, antiquities and things like that, it seems. And, yeah, he's, like, an evil treasure hunter here. But, yeah, he's totally smart, but I'm definitely glad, like, we learned that he has, like, this checkered past, because... He's playing it nice and everything, and then when he knock, you know, they they tell you that he's a bad guy right before he knocks out John Voight. So it was like, shoo, they got that in right, right <laughs> under the wire for me. One actually kind of weird movie connections. I don't. I, it's almost a cage connection, but not quite. That house that John Voight lives in is just you know a commonly used house in movies, and it was also used in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And so it's funny that John Voight's father, like father daughter, living in the same house. Angelina Jolie, back from Gone in 60 Seconds, at least in spirit, her ghost is in that house. (laughs) It's just a weird kind of movie coincidence, movie connection. Let me ask you real quick. I know nothing about phone cloning or anything to that extent, but would this actually, is this the kind of thing that works? Like, because it's cool that I've never seen this in a film before, but it feels exactly like something that would have been done like a thousand times by now. I feel like what they do is two different things. Like, I feel like it's not cloning. They're sort of like bugging the phone yeah. and cloning the phone in one. Okay. It makes sense. I don't know. I mean, to me, if they just cloned the phone and sort of made their new phone an exact replica, he shouldn't be able to answer it and like hear what they're saying. They both shouldn't be able to answer the phone. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like they're they're getting all the information, but they're also I don't know, it's weird. It's very cool though. I don't know if, <laughs> I'm sure that I'm sure that technology might exist. I'm, I'm surprised it's not in more movies, but it is pretty cool. It's definitely something that more bad guys wish they could probably do. Yeah, I didn't question yeah, I was, it. I was just like, wow, 
that's amazing. And then <laughs> didn't think about it again. Yeah, I, I assumed it was just a cool way to show, like, the phone is bugged. But then I started thinking about it, going, like, okay, well, if the phone rings, like, and who answers it first? And then it's like, but if he answers it, they'll know it's... And then I stopped thinking about it. Because <laughs> I was just glad to see it done. And so they go to Buckingham Palace, and they don't really know that Ed Harris is after them. So it's kind of a different kind of threat. It's almost like a deadlier threat that Sean Bean, they knew from the very start, from that iceberg, from being on the North Pole that he was going to be after them, that they were going to be in a race to get this treasure. Here, it's just kind of like a race to the treasure to clear his great-great-grandfather's name. Well, they're not even looking for the treasure yet. They're still looking for clues to clear his name, right? Right. They got that book from Booth's diary and deciphered it, and it led him to the Statue of Liberty in Paris, and that led him to Buckingham Palace in London. And, And now we're at this desk, but what I'm expecting to find is like, I don't know, what, like a piece of paper that says, you know, your great great grandfather had nothing to do with it. <laughs> like, it's hard to understand. There is no treasure yet. That's really interesting so far. The next step toward finding that treasure is going to Buckingham Palace and finding that first resolute desk. And here we get my favorite moment in the movie. They have some plan to get into the office to get the desk. That goes to hell when Diane Kruger shows up and Cage is like, oh, I'm not going to be able to do my plan A. Let's go with plan B. And so Riley remotely says, all right, cause a scene. And they just start screaming at each other. We're the one who's making a scene right now. I, I'm not making a scene right now. No, we want to make a scene. Well, then fine. That's what you want. Then let's have it out right now. Ah, so subtle. Well, let me guess. It's the wrong time. It's the wrong place. I'm wrong again. Wrong about us. Wrong about Thomas Gates. Wrong that you'd like the Queen Anne chair. You're wrong to assume I'd like the chair. You see? You see, everybody, listen to this. This is more interesting than that. She thinks that even when I'm right, I'm wrong. Isn't that right? Abigail, just because I answer a question quickly doesn't make it wrong. Not if the right answer is something we need to figure out together. As a couple, that's what couples do. And And then Cage busts out this British, like, insane, (laughs) over-the-top Cockney accent and is, like, high-stepping down the stairs and, like, pumping his arms. And this is kind of the movie that I can see Cage fans and kids loving. Everybody else sort of being like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, he's like, this is just being crazy. Oh, now look what you've done. You brought the little bobbies down on us. You take the missus outside. I'm staying right here. Ben! Good afternoon, sir. Hello. Been drinking, have we? Just a nip. Just popped down to the pub for a pint. Bit of all right. Going to arrest a man for that. Going to detain a blighter for enjoying his whiskey. So uh, that's enough, sir. Beggars and mash. Bubbles and squeak. Smoke deal pie. Sir. Haggers! That's it. Dismount the banister. I've got a lovely that's bunch of coconuts. Here they are standing in a row. Small one. Come on. Stop as big as your it's so good, and I love it so much, and I really wish we had an entire movie, you know, some kind of, like, spoof or mockumentary or whatever, where Cage got to do this, this Cockney accent for, like, 90 minutes. Is, this is drunk Cage. He, he planned this, though. He had this little bottle of liquor when he went there, and then he turned around and Diane Kruger was there. Drunk Cage was amazing. <laughs> amazing. It was my favorite part of this whole movie. I was laughing hysterically. So you like Nicolas Cage. Admit it. I, I think I like him a little now. this was great what's kind of cool about this scene is like yeah he had like a plan to cause a distraction and now he's sort of calling an audible on that and so his level of acting you know like it's necessary because it's part of the story right it's not just like if you take it out of context of course it's going to seem like this incredibly over-the-top performance 
But it's necessary, and part of the awkwardness goes to, like, well, Ben Gates isn't an actor, right? Like, he wouldn't pull this off perfectly either. So, like, he wouldn't exactly know what to do. But Cage is great, stomping down the stairs, and Joey, he does the point. You know, I thought of you, because he gets to the bottom, and he just points at her and, like, grabs a tourist, and he's like, she's always right. She says so all the time. (laughs) (laughs) When the guard comes in, and he slides down the banister, I was like, oh, man. (laughs) And it's just like, I get it. Like, so over the top. The accents are great. I complained a little bit that he's not been doing accents for a while, and this is definitely getting my fill right here. This is all I need for a while. <laughs> and they get thrown in basically Buckingham Palace jail, which I guess is just underground, and Riley breaks them out. But while they're down there, like, Diane Kruger, here is another example. Like, she's standing up for herself, I feel, and saying, like, look, like, you're a jerk. Like, you're not respecting me. And he's just like, oh, whatever. Like, I don't have time to deal with this right now. Which I guess, like, yeah, like, you, you really don't have time. Like, this isn't necessarily the time or place to have this conversation. But also... I don't know. Like, listen to what she's saying. Yeah, I wrote down that she was making some solid points, even though it was not the best time. She was right. He gives her a little credit when he's like, when did you know it was a gag? Or when did you know it it was, you know, it was fake and stuff? And so I was like, yeah, look, like she's able to adapt to like any situation. You know, she's cool under pressure. She gets what's going on. Like, you know, you have no idea what you have here. Like, (laughs) you have no idea how much I want Dr. Abby Chase to just walk out of that movie into my life. You know, (laughs) like it's incredible what he's just throwing away i i don't know (laughs) and they get up to the resolute desk and it's like a chinese puzzle box and again they figure out not the first try but like the second try really really quickly they figure out exactly what to do they're just exceptionally good at what they do i guess because they know like how do you operate this desk what numbers to put in for the most part they get the little glyph i guess the little piece of wood like what is that actually printed on is that wood i think it's wood yeah it turns out to be wood but it looked like a piece of stone slab or something at yeah. first but yeah it's got some ancient carvings on it you know no one knows what what they mean it's sort of a curveball right like i was not expecting to see this whatsoever you know like one minute we're dealing with the civil war and now we're talking like you know ancient indians I was excited when i finally saw it when they didn't know what it was i was like yes new thing And they head outside, and I think, again, sort of like a throwback to the first movie, that one of the biggest action sequences in the first movie was this car chase where Cage was driving and chasing after Diane Kruger, and Sean Bean was trying to drive her away after kidnapping her. That I don't know if this is necessarily, if this is kind of more generic car chase action, but it's cool that Diane Kruger's driving and kind of like this badass female stunt getaway driver. Yeah, I thought she was uh, good behind the wheel. I thought that was like a really cool choice that they did by, by putting her there. And I mean, I never really seen a car chase through London that I can recall exactly, but it kind of gave me a, a little bit of like a Jason Bourne feel when they're driving through one of those Euro towns and it's really sure. narrow and, you know, lots of one ways and things like that. So that was a really cool sort of cog in the wheel sort of going on there. And, and then you had the keg truck, which was interesting too, and the, the keg <laughs> sort of flying all throughout the street. I feel like there's probably been a mission impossible chase through london kingsman like i said that's that chase through london a little bit it wasn't too long it wasn't too crazy he was just driving backwards away yeah but it is kind of i guess a different like it's not the rock driving through san francisco it's not national treasure driving through new york washington where were they washington philadelphia yes no i don't know I no think, washington i think they were washington. still in dc at that point yeah 
it's cool. It's a cool. It's a nice little change of pace. And like you were, <laughs> I don't want to steal your joke, Mike, but like like you were saying this morning, it's sort of like international treasure now. Like we've gone overseas. We've expanded this epic action adventure movie to brand new continents. Yeah, I'm kind of bummed that we're gonna wind up back in the United States. To be honest with you, like I know by having seen the last thirty minutes of this film before, I know we we end in the United States. But I was kind of thinking, you know, I wish we didn't. Where are we going next? Are we gonna go to the Himalayas? That seems like some place that this treasure might lead us. So, you know, somewhere in the Orient. We haven't seen that in, in these films yet. Maybe maybe part three. <laughs> and so as they're driving away, Ed Harris catches up because he's like, all right, we, we know that they're after something big. I think he kind of tips his hand a little bit too soon here, but I guess it's just to add a little bit of tension. Cage, in real quick thinking, takes a picture at that traffic light and gets the picture there and has Riley hack into the computer to figure out what the thing says and he tosses it overboard, they just sort of get away. It's kind of confusing, I guess, right? Because Ed Harris is kind of after them, because he doesn't know where they're going. I'm not sure why he's so intent on getting that piece of wood that they throw overboard. It seems like he's kind of like mixed goals in terms of what he's really after. Does he even know what that piece of wood is at this point? Like, I don't, I don't know. think he's seen it. He says, jump in and get it or something. The guy's like, what is it? He's like, I don't know, but it must be important <laughs> or something, right? Like, And I'm like, how could it be important if you just saw the guy like throw it away? I would think it's garbage and not part of what he needs, but I don't think like a treasure hunter. We cut back to America, and they're talking about how these symbols are easily 500 years old, and they point to the mysterious The Lost City of Gold. And this guy, Cibola? Cibala? Cibala? Cibola. Cibola. Cage sort of tells his story and, like, what this means. Because I think a lot of people, maybe not most people, but I think a lot of people have sort of heard myths or stories about, like, a city of gold. But this is kind of like filling in, like, this is, like, might exist or really exist, whatever. And this is, like, what it would actually be. That symbol is Cibola. That's Cibola. The city of gold. City of Gold. In 1527, a Spanish ship wrecked on the Florida coast. There were only four survivors. One was a slave named Esteban, who saved a local tribe's dying chief. As a reward, he was taken to their sacred city, a city built from solid gold. Later, when Esteban tried to find the city again, he never could. But the legend grew and every explorer came to the new world in search of it. Yeah, I'm kind of bummed they didn't figure out this was going to be the treasure from the beginning. Like, I almost feel like this was figured out, you know, while they were filming, or maybe it was figured out, like, late into the screenwriting process. So if this was the flashback in the opening, you know, like, let's start with Esteban coming ashore in Florida in 1527, and the Indians bringing him to the city of gold and all of that and you know maybe a secret getting snuck out and, and then we could cut to civil war or go throughout the years like we saw the treasure changing hands and things like that because this is like now we finally have sort of a goal really i don't know something obtainable because they still don't know how to clear his ancestor's name that still like seems to be the main driving force here i also have one question about that it also sure that whole thing just seems to be ed harris way to get Nick Cage to start looking for this treasure. It's almost as if he knows that his great-great-grandfather isn't really part of the Lincoln assassination plot. He just said that to get Nick Cage to look for the treasure for him. Yeah, I think, I think that makes sense. I think that's okay. probably the case. Alright, that's what I'm starting to feel here. That's what, you know, that's why I'm starting to get okay, like, we're never really gonna, it's not gonna matter. It's all about finding this treasure now. Like, once we find the treasure, his grandfather's name is just gonna miraculously be cleared. Because Ed Harris, it's basically 
I think, a lie the entire time, that his great-great-grandfather never had anything to do with it. This is just, like, the card that Ed Harris could play to get Cage on the trail and eventually to that city of gold. See, I feel like they should have taken a cue, one extra cue from Indiana Jones Part 3, where the Nazi basically comes to Indy and is like, here's what I'm looking for. <laughs> like, I'd like to hire you to help me find this lost city or whatever, right? And I feel like if Ed Harris was just like, I want to fund you and, like, help me find this thing instead of besmirching his good name. But perhaps that would have been too much like the first one, where he teamed up with Sean Bean originally, like, they were partners and then the whole double cross so can't get too familiar can't get too familiar and the way to get a little bit less familiar is by introducing a new character and we we finally meet nicholas cage's mom dame helen mirren who is teaching at the university of maryland and who is an expert maybe they didn't conceive of her character in the first movie i think it would have been cool to learn a little bit because we don't really know anything about her at all from the first movie right no they sort of i got the feeling that she was dead the way the dad was talking about her and right. he was also wearing a re- wedding ring in the first movie this is why i thought she was dead i guess you <laughs> weird yeah they didn't really treat the female characters very sensitively in the first film so i guess yeah. she was sort of just like this non-entity to me it was just like okay she's just not in the picture but it's definitely cool to see her here now i was a little taken aback that john void hasn't spoken to her in like 30 years like that seems like a remarkably long time when you have a child with someone, but I don't know. I'm not, I've never been married, and I don't have any kids, <laughs> so I can't speak for everybody. But if your son is like this world-celebrated treasure hunter, like you would have thought they'd have at least met at some point in the last like couple of years. They're meeting now, and she can decipher ancient Native American languages. But before we really even meet her... Like, we see one of her students burst out of her office, and she's like, I hate her. And, like, once again, just setting up women to be, like, this this object of, like, public scorn, I guess, that, you know, even if they're smart, even if they're intelligent and good at what they can do, they're still, like, hated because they're, I guess, too smart? Or, I don't know. It just sort of seemed like an odd way to sort of set her up. I guess it's played for a joke that, like, of course John Hoy would leave her, like, Everybody hates her. He's even like, see, like, what? See what I mean? It turns out she left him, right? Like, he, they had Ben, and they used to go on these awesome treasure hunts together. But she had to sort of stay at home and raise Ben while John Voigt went out like gallivanting across the globe doing his like cool thing. So it's kind of weird. I mean, they 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 want her to just come in, and she's playing that resentment, you know, to start off. So I guess that's just the student thing is just a way of saying she's angry, and it's all John Voigt's fault all these years. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. That's how I'm putting it together. I'm trying to. I'm trying to salvage her. <laughs> Someone's got to hate the treasure hunters. John Voight's on board this whole movie. He needs to clear his name. Someone's got to resist. She learns that like there's only they only have half a treasure map, but the thing is snapped, and they have to look for the other desk. They have to look for the other thing. She finds out that this says, "Find the noble bird, let him take you by the hand, and give you passage to the sacred temple," which I guess is sort of specific. I feel like that's enough of a clue based on what Cage knows that we don't need the other half. But I guess we do need the other half. Well, he didn't know the language. Well, I guess he was able to identify the language, so he knew his mom could read it, but I don't think this is a moment where he can, like, grasp at straws and figure out the next clue. Yeah, he needs this, some solid evidence. This is, like, I guess half the clue. This He still needs the location of the place, and this is sort of like the doorbell <laughs> we come to find out. Or these words are sort of like the key to open the door to get to the treasure, but they don't have the location of the treasure yet. So. Yeah, they don't know where the door is. Yeah. And so after they figure out from Helen Mirren what this message says, they go back and they sort of have a little powwow, and they realize that they need to go find the other Resolute Desk, 
which is in the Oval Office, and they're going to break into the Oval Office. Somebody, I think it's Diane Kruger, right, has this, like, this great opposition to the plan, and he just starts screaming at her about how she has a tendency to overreact, and the only way that they're going to be able to get this mystery and to sort of clear the name is by breaking into the Oval Office. At least we know where the rest of the map is. What? You know where it is? Why didn't you tell me? Because obviously you have a tendency to overreact! I'm sorry. So am I. So where is it? The inscription on the statue in Paris said these twins stand resolute. I think the map divided between the two resolute desks. The resolute desk? The resolute desk? President's desk. The president? What president? Our president? Unfortunately, yes. Did that mean... Wait, so we have to... The White House? The Oval Office, to be exact. Why would I overreact to that? Yeah, and uh, it turns out that this movie takes place in April because there's an Easter egg role at the White House. Yeah. They're going to use uh, Ty Burrell as a connection to sort of get their foot in the door and try and sneak their way around the property. But before they really get their foot in the door, Cage has this huge argument with this little kid. <laughs> yeah. And like we talked a lot recently about how Cage plays well with kids. I guess that's sort of true here, but, like, it's, like, funny in, like, an awkward kind of way to see him just screaming at this poor little kid. Hey, I know you. Your great-great-grandfather killed President Lincoln. No, that would be John Wilkes Booth. Eisenhower says that Booth was just a tool in a greater conspiracy that involved men in Lincoln's own cabinet. Absurd. Eisenschimmel's book is filled with spotty research and false assumptions. Oh, yeah? Yeah. How do you explain why Lincoln's bodyguard left his post that night? Because President Lincoln was never accompanied by guards when attending the theater. Are you listening? Especially on Good Friday. How do you explain why all the bridges out of Washington were closed? Except one. The one boot needed to escape. Okay, run along now, you impossible child. Run along. What is going on with the education in America? This is my favorite part after him in Buckingham Palace. is him, like, full force screaming at this child about guards on duty and all this history stuff. This kid has no idea. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's so funny how fast word of this traveled, too. People are going to get it into their heads so quickly, it's going to be impossible for them to even accept that, you know, his great-great-grandfather wasn't a traitor when, he, when his name is cleared. Like, if little kids are already recognizing him, like, in the street and, like, going into this whole thing about... <laughs> You know, he's a traitor and a murderer and stuff like that. It's going to be a longer road ahead. But, and I also think the scene is just to remind us, by the way, like, his name is tarnished. Like, people don't respect him. However, it, it does the same thing that earlier. Like, we're watching a grown man yell at a child. Like, it is not <laughs> it is not ingratiating him in my eyes whatsoever. It's weird that it's like a reminder, because it's like, of course you wouldn't be able to forget that, you know, his name is tarnished. You wouldn't be able to forget why he's doing all this. But sort of toward the end, when they go into the, like, when they actually find the city of gold and everything, it's like, why? I, 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 <laughs> you're sort of like, oh, right, like, they're doing this for, like, a reason. They're not just hunting treasure. Like, it's just like this whole weird, like, you get lost in it. And here, I guess because they haven't really done crazy action adventure stuff yet so having that car chase you're like okay i'm still on board but then like as the movie kind of goes like above and beyond it gets like <laughs> a little bit crazier you're like all oh, right like i could use a reminder that like why they're doing this 
Yeah, there's far less action in this one than there was in the original one. This one sort of tries to rely more on comedy and reference and that playful craziness of the plot in general and the absurdity of that whole idea. Yeah, I was a little surprised by that, to be honest. And I was even more surprised that I didn't really realize how little action was in this film. I, for some reason, I just maybe I just love the characters now or something. I mean, I, I'm going along with all this craziness. <laughs> I just am. I don't know, Joey. I think I, I'm, I don't know if I messaged you last night, but like I was laughing like so much just at people's one-liners. Like they weren't even funny, but it's just like knowing the characters now and like the actors and and this this whole universe and stuff. I would definitely go to part three. <laughs> I, I don't know. If, I don't know if I'll ever get the opportunity. I say supposedly announced it's supposedly coming we'll see if it ever happens i hope that if we ever do get to a part three they write diane kruger's character a little bit better because here i know it just sort of to move the plot along but she's used like a sex object like they they use her to kind of flirt their way into the oval office and then we don't get close-ups like i feel like this was pg-13 if this was a michael bay movie we would have different camera angles but basically as kate just like messing around with the resolute desk at the oval office She's just, like, bending over and, like, showing Ty Perel her boobs and her butt and just, like, looking for her, quote-unquote, lost earring. Again, like, this brilliant, maybe, you know, aside from Cage, or maybe even in spite of Cage, like, the smartest person in this movie, and she's just, like, resorted to being, like, this object for Ty Burrell to lust over and, like, lose track of what Cage is doing. It was kind of awful, actually. It was like, it was supposed to be funny, and I thought it was kind of funny. Like, Ty Burrell was just, like, completely mesmerized. I guess he's never seen a woman before. I don't know. She just seemed to be really proud at the end when her big final distraction was kissing him. She was totally overacting into it, probably trying to rub it in Ben's face a little bit. I thought it was kind of funny. I shouldn't think it's funny, though. It is kind of sad that she was like, look, I was helpful, see? <laughs> like, it's like, oh, man, it's like all the good nature that they built up with me so far with her character i feel like they're rehabilitating her character a little bit and then this scene two steps forward three steps back i had that same face that ben had when he turned around and saw them making out i was like yeah me too buddy i don't know why they went there it turns out that in all of this like it's sort of the searches for not well not really not but like the thing's not there instead they just see a stamp of an eagle with a scroll in its claws cage isn't sure and this to me seems a little unbelievable. Like, Cage, is, Cage and Diane Kruger have both never seen this symbol, but I guess this is, like, the one opportunity for Riley in this movie to be like, hey, guys, I know something that you don't know. The last movie, he had his little daylight saving time moment, which was 30 seconds, but this time he got to drag it out a little more. And I feel bad because, like, you know, the clue is in his book that neither of them has read or opened. Yeah, that is, like, the saddest thing is that the only reason he's got one up on... Ben in the first place is because Ben doesn't even think enough of his partner to read his own book that he wrote about their adventures together. And then if he did that, he'd know exactly what he was looking at, right? Like he'd, he'd have that information. While Riley has his moment, it's like a cheap moment too. You know, it's not even, I don't know, to me, it didn't even feel as cool as it could have until the next scene when you find out that Harvey Keitel read the book too. That kind of redeemed the whole joke in my eyes. It was like, ah, oh, like even Harvey Keitel has like some respect for Riley. <laughs> and it's also like a solid joke. He's like, your friend writes a book with conspiracy theories about the government. Like, yeah, we're, we're going to know about it. It's on our radar. They go to Harvey Keitel and they're trying to figure out like what to do, how to get this book, try to get the second half of the clue. And Harvey Keitel is like, well, you could get elected president. And Cage is like, well, you know, and I would. <laughs> there is a book. Why are you telling me out here? Because inside I'm a federal agent. Out here I'm talking to you as a friend, Ben. 
Where's the president's book kept? Only the current president knows. The book is passed from president to president. And each one chooses his own hiding place. You're the FBI. Can't you get it for me? The only way you'll ever see that book is if you get elected president. Well, you never know. We, we don't get Cage as president, I don't think, in any movie, but, like, he could totally be President Cage in some kind of movie. Imagine, like, White House Down with him instead of Jamie Foxx. Like, that would have been great. Yeah, or maybe even Air Force One with him instead of Harrison Ford or something like that. <laughs> what kind of blew my mind here is that the seal is in Riley's book, and they know that it has, like, something to do with a president or something, or George Washington. Like, it's not like the presidential seal, but it's, like, some president's secret seal. And Harvey Keitel yeah. is like, oh, yeah, it's about this, you know, secret book that the presidents keep. And I'm like, dude, why aren't you, like, FBI? I mean, I'm not exactly sure Harvey Keitel is the character they should have gotten the, oh, by the way, there's this, like, <laughs> secret book that the presidents keep. I feel like Harvey Keitel might be, because we were sort of unclear in the first movie, that, yeah, he is, like, sort of the head of the FBI, or at least heading this investigation, but he's also, like, a Templar. Yeah. So, I feel like he kind of has a brotherhood, sort of, with Cage, but I agree, I don't know that he necessarily should be divulging all the secret information. I'm just trying to make excuses now. Maybe he's willing to do so because he knows that Cage will never get his hands on the book. But it also, like, you've seen what this guy is willing to do. He's willing to steal the Declaration of Independence. What makes you think that he's not going to come up with some way to break into wherever, whether it's the White House? We ultimately know that it's the Library of Congress. But, like, what makes you think that Cage isn't going to break into somewhere and maybe do something to the president to get this book? He's got to be bored at work because there's no way he does <laughs> not know that Cage is going to do something crazy to get what he needs. He needs something to do. I'm convinced there's no way he went into this thinking, oh, this will dissuade him. <laughs> It's just so strange that Harvey Keitel like almost sends Cage off on this crazy goose chase just so that Harvey Keitel can go chase after him and be busy all day. It's like, why don't you just help him treasure hunt? Join the team. This should be Harvey Keitel's sort of like entry into the inner sanctum and like go meet John Voight and Helen Mirren and then maybe there's, uh-oh, maybe there's a love triangle between the elder folk. I don't know. Um, that could be fun or not. But I'm just saying, it's just weird that he's like, here's a really big tip. Whatever you do, don't go and like find this book that exists that is your catnip that you're totally going to go find anyway. <laughs> and he piques Cage's interest enough that he has this line that I can't believe I didn't know before I saw this movie. That in the first movie, sort of the line is, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. In this movie, sort of delivered in the exact same way, he says... I'm going to kidnap the president of the United States. And everybody's like, what are you going to do? Like, what? Like, that, that, that can't be your plan. Is that really your plan? All I need is a few minutes with him. A few minutes, really. Then, even if you were married to the president, you wouldn't be able to get a few minutes with him. Not when he's surrounded by his handlers, but if I can get him alone. How do you expect to get the president alone? Before the Civil War, states were all separate. People used to say, the United States are wasn't until the war ended, people started saying the United States is. Under Lincoln, we became one nation. And Lincoln paid for it with his life. So did Thomas Gates. Right. With his life. So, how am I going to get him alone? I'm going to kidnap him. I'm going to kidnap the President of the United States. 
everyone freaks out, rightly, because that's crazy. That's crazier than stealing the Declaration of Independence. They one-upped <laughs> it. They were very successful. They got a, he got a great reaction. Yeah, I feel like they tried to do like a joke about this earlier where Riley's like, oh, what is there, a treasure map on the Statue of Liberty? You know, and it's like, oh, that's not the joke. Just you wait. Like, <laughs> the actual line is this. And it's also kind of crazy that more people quote, I got to steal the Declaration of Independence than quote, I got to kidnap the President of the United States. That is like, the one everyone should be going around quoting when the shit hits the fan. Like <laughs> To me, it's such a stronger, crazier line, and I love it. What's also crazy is that they have the poll to apparently book every location or, you know, put a fake booking down on every location that the president could relocate his party to, that they need to get him into Mount Vernon. They need to get him in a specific place where Cage knows that he'll be able to, like, sort of work the angles and get him alone. But, like, it's amazing that these this group of sort of ragtag bunch of teachers and just, you know, government historians has the ability and the knowledge to be like, all right, like, here, we're going to book, book this place, we're going to book this place, we're going to book this place, and, like, they're going to have to go to Mount Vernon. I think I zoned out for a second because I didn't know what they were doing. As they kept going, I was like, oh, that's a really smart plan. Good job, guys. <laughs> this goes to show just how invaluable Riley is. I mean, he is the main hacker guy. He's, like, the backbone of this operation. Like, Cage would be nothing without this guy, <laughs> if you ask me, you know? Give him the biggest share next time they find a treasure. He's the one that's just going in and looking all the rooms and stuff. And Cage is the only only thing he said is, get him to Mount Vernon. And Riley's like, okay, <laughs> master. They get to Mount Vernon, and Cage, once again, it's not quite repairman or utility man to full tuxedo, but he has a tuxedo on underneath his scuba diving suit. And I like that we have, for the second movie in a row, completely different exterior costume, full dapper James Bond-like cage underneath. I liked this scene a lot. I liked that they used his diving skills again, because I remember the horrifying jump from the uh, Intrepid or wherever. I liked that they reused his diving skills and he got to go down in the scuba suit. I couldn't believe he wasn't gross and sweaty when he took it off to reveal his tuxedo, but it worked. It was nice. And he pulls a line that is completely the opposite of every cage that we've come to know and love so far. Hey, you didn't happen to see kind of a cute brunette wandering around here? Went to get her a drink and she disappeared. No, sir. I've got no game tonight. We're like, Cage, you always have game. Like, somehow you always have game. And also, Mike, he's also looking for a cute brunette. Like, that does not align with your theory about him only liking blondes. <laughs> yeah, after some fuzzy math with that theory, it actually turns out brunettes may have a slight edge over the blonde co-stars in his films. <gasps> yeah, or they're at least very close to even, with maybe one or two redheads like Julia Moore thrown in there in the mix. But it was, it was kind of funny to see him play on, like, yeah, that no game line was great. Especially after appearing out of the water like James Bond and then he's like the anti-Bond in a lot of ways where he's got all the gear but he's just not suave. And I also loved how uh, his dad was in on the whole scheme too, right? He's like, yep. he's like I'll go uh, pretend to go night fishing and distract the Secret Service. You sneak in in a frog suit under the cover of darkness and uh, make sure to wear your tuxedo. I like that his dad is always like, I'll go along with the plan as long as I don't have to do anything too crazy. Like, I'll let you tie me to a chair. I'll go fishing at night, but, like, I'm not getting my hands dirty until I absolutely have to. 
since he uh, found that first treasure, you know, and all that, I guess it just seems like he'll believe anything his son comes to him <laughs> with at this point. It's just like, I believe you, son. You, you, I'm on your side. Considering just sort of how open it is, I know there's cops everywhere. It just seems like the president's just like standing out in the open by himself, and Cage walks right up to him, and he knows exactly who Ben Gates is because he is this great treasure hunter, this guy who found all this riches and gold underneath Wall Street. He just starts talking to him. He's just like, hey, I have this map. And one thing that sort of surprised me a little bit in this movie is that the people who are so in love with history treat these historical documents which is like <laughs> reckless disregard for any kind of care. <laughs> he's got that map of like Mount Vernon from like the day it was built and he's just like check this out. It was uh, in my tuxedo which was under my frog suit and I was just in the water a minute ago with this in there too. It could have totally been destroyed if I was more careful. They, he sort of smooth talks the president to go he's like hey check this out and the president's like oh you know I was like an architecture major in college he's like I had no idea. Or like a history architecture. Some very oddly specific degree that's suited exactly for this mission in particular. And he's like, well, there's a secret tunnel underneath here. Let's go check that out. And the president's like, all right, I got nothing better to do. And they go, and the, the president sort of brushes off a secret service and kind of, again, like a throwback to the first movie, get to this little chamber that looks like a dead end, and Cage opens up this little like panel and gets them into this other sort of secret, more secret area. Did you also get, when he was showing the president the map, he was like, one of his relatives got this from a, a slave named Charlotte. And I was like, oh, probably another dead end from trying to find Charlotte the boat. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is interesting. I wonder if he had that map from, yeah, the previous movie's treasure hunt, if it was one of the dead ends that, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I didn't think about that. It's the one thing I was true. thinking about, though, is like, yeah, why did they have to write the president as like an architect enthusiast? Like, can't you just be the president and be interested in the <laughs> very first president's house and be like, whoa, like this was George Washington's house. That's just like enough reason to go check out the basement for me you would think but i guess it's not i guess they always need a little bit more and they go down to the basement and cage closes the door and it's like all right you're just gonna get yourself into trouble now i guess the, the president's like you know what you're doing right and cage's like i know exactly what i'm doing but i have to clear my name i have to clear my family's name everything i do is because of them and again sort of like he did with diane kruger earlier in this movie what he did several times in the last movie he kind of has to sell the president on like why he should help him that there is a deeper meaning here there is something more he's after. He's not just some crazy person looking for treasure. Everything I am is because of my ancestors, sir. Thomas Gates gave his last full measure of devotion to his country to stop the KGC. When someone dies for their country, I believe they should be honored. Last full measure of devotion. Lincoln's my favorite president, sir. No offense. None taken. He's my favorite, too. Sir, I know the book exists, and my question is, will you agree to let me see it? Even if something like that really did exist, why do you think I would actually just give it to you? Because it will probably lead us to the discovery of the greatest Native American treasure of all time. A huge piece of culture lost. You can give that history back to its descendants. Because... You're the President of the United States, sir. Whether by innate character, or the oath you took to defend the Constitution, or the weight of history that falls upon you, I believe you to be an honorable man, sir. Gates, people don't believe that stuff anymore. They want to believe it. 
Yeah, and he's not really kidnapping the president either. The president, he doesn't seem nervous or, like, that concerned, honestly. It's, like, kidnap adjacent. He gets comfortable enough to build the beans. Yeah, and it seems like the president really likes Ben. It feels like they're quick friends. And I like this president. Like, I have a thing for fictional presidents in films. Like, the last time I think I discussed it, it was during The Rock and how he shows up for a minute and, like, makes this, like, incredible decision and to bomb The Rock and then just is out of the movie. But here we get, like, a really cool, like, a JFK-esque modern fictional president played by the guy who goes on to be in Star Trek the reboot too and i like greenwood yeah real quick you mentioned jfk he played jfk in the movie 13 days so this guy is a real jfk awesome well i definitely (laughs) love the idea that they took the president of the united states and like gave him sort of an average joe ish quality but also said look maybe in part three he's gonna be along for the rider so i feel like they're setting him up in some way and i just really enjoy that they can go here and do this in a movie and that national treasure gets to earn these kind of things like yeah ben is gonna meet the president and they're gonna get along and he's gonna be an ally and that's cool and and it's also interesting too that yeah they every Everyone is like, oh, you've kidnapped the president now, but we know the truth as the audience. So, (laughs) you know, it adds just that little bit of tension. Like, we don't want to see him get caught now. And so the president gives in and he directs him to the Library of Congress. That's where the book is. And they have to go sneak into the Library of Congress and go through this, like, labyrinth of the go. They're looking for the book and they're sneaking around because they're wanted because they know that he kidnapped the president, even though he didn't really necessarily kidnap, kidnap the president, like Melissa said kidnap adjacent they go into this like secret room and they find the book and i guess it's just sort of like a tease like a little fun joke for the audience and i think somebody talked about last time i think maybe melissa talked about how riley is basically the audience and cage is like flipping through this book and they see this the truth about area 51 and the kennedy assassination he's like can we like just stop like for one minute and just like see what's going on he's like no i got i got one thing to do and i'm not i don't want to know about all the other greatest mysteries in the history of the world let's just come do the one thing that i was told to do and also look at page 47 for the president yeah riley is so excited he's just in the background just being like oh my god it's so it was so funny i enjoyed it that would be me i'd just be like what are you doing let's read this book yeah, they should be taking pictures of every page, you know, not yeah. just page 47 and not just the picture of the piece of wood that was found and then destroyed after a picture was taken of it and then added to the book of secrets. Yeah, I definitely feel like Riley's got an, uh, another book after this movie that he's going to write. <laughs> it's gonna, maybe that's why Cage was like, no, no, no. If I show you Area 51, you're just going to write about it and like become a best-selling author. <laughs> they find out that Mount Rushmore was a cover-up, that this may be what they're looking for like they need that's where they need to go and so it's kind of cool when we go overseas right that we're brought back to america but we're not brought back to like colonial america we're brought back to somewhat more modern america out west a little bit to mount rushmore it's kind of a new part of the country for cage maybe national treasure 3 will take place in like the southwest maybe it'll be on hawaii who knows maybe we'll keep rocketing forward in time but i like that it's sort of something a little bit more recent than philadelphia and boston washington dc Yeah, and it's a great American landmark to use in the film as well. You know, there's just such great production value built into that mountain, right? It's also iconic in films to a degree. I mean, I was definitely thinking North by Northwest when they showed up there, the Hitchcock film. I think it's really cool. And at this point also, Ed Harris has kidnapped the mother, right? Like, yeah, like, so that's not cool. (laughs) I mean, it's good 
for the story and everything like that, but what a jerk. He's like, you know, <laughs> take me to Mount Rushmore. <laughs> yeah, they, they go to the office, and like that's where they find out like that they need to go to Mount Rushmore. John Voight goes, right? And he's like talking to his wife, and it's like, shouldn't you be able to... Like, I know that they haven't talked in 32 years, but like, shouldn't you be able to read this woman's body language, yes. this woman that you loved? Like, know that she's like distressed right now. Know that there's some kind of threat in the room. He's just like... All right, like, well, you know where to go now. Well, bye. <laughs> he just leaves. Yeah, I think she was threatened, right? Like, tell him a lie, make him go away, and all that kind of stuff. And I got the sense that she told him some kind of coded message to some degree. But it is a little strange that they didn't perform some kind of rescue, and then it was like a chase to Mount Rushmore or something. I, I don't know. But it's a little strange how they just kind of, like, we follow Ed Harris for a couple scenes, and then we bump into Cage again at Mount Rushmore. Like, it just it was just kind of funny. Everybody gets on Mount Rushmore, and they're all sort of negotiating and, like, intimidating one another about like what comes next and i like these movies and there's it seems to be happening a lot lately we're basically and this happened in the first movie too everybody we really know just happens to be in the same place and so it's not like we're cutting back and forth we're like all right this is where the rest of the movie is going to take place this is where we're going to pay all of our focus to everybody we know is here we're, we're near the end of the movie yeah, and there's some kind of talk about a letter from Queen Victoria, and they go quickly into how Great Britain was helping the South during the Civil War and, and all this stuff, and I was kind of like, oh, we're introducing, like, this sounds important, and this is very late into the movie. Like, this is all very new, and okay, where's all this going? But <laughs> I guess it turns out, like, Ed Harris has these final clues, right? And he burns the letter and commits them to memory, so, so they have to take him along, like, if they like him or not. Like, they got no choice. They have to team up and they find out that this is the first half of the clue that they find this rock like the clue says like basically they have to pour water on the rock and they pour water on the rock and then they find this eagle in the rock and cage has to put his hand in and pull a latch and it opens up and like once again we always have to descend in these national treasure movies we always have to go like underground to find the treasure we're never we're never going up we're always going down they have to go down into this like water well like just sort of underground hydroponic i don't i don't know like just <laughs> it's just like this crazy underground water f- facility yeah they have a lot of the same sort of things start happening that happened in the first movie is as far as discovering old i don't even know methods of transportation and things collapsing but i like ed harris i know that he's set up to be super scary but this is the part of the movie where i start to like him because he's a villain but he's sort of (laughs) on their team now like he's not at all like sean bean was it wasn't nice but it was it was it was sort of nice of him he's getting nicer yeah, I think he plays a nice guy better than he plays sort of the villain, which is why I think it could have been cool if he played it off like a good guy for most of the film and we got sort of like a double cross from him at some point because you'd like, oh, it would feel like a betrayal because he's such a nice guy. I, I always just think of him in Apollo 13, you know, and he's like one of the heroes of that film, so I can't get that image out of my head half the time. This is like pretty cool and, and you're definitely right. Like when we get to like the entrance of the treasure temples in both films, it's it, it, again, feels like we're online for the ride, National Treasure 2, sure. and we have to sort of walk through, like, this abandoned temple. Even before we get to the water zone, there's the rickety platform. Remember that part? Yep, yep. That's like a death trap. It's like one of the longest scenes in the film, and I'm still not even sure how they survived <laughs> that situation. It was insane. Everything down here is basically designed to kill them. That, like, once they figure out that they need to drain the water to go down, then they get, like, plunged onto this, like seesaw platform where they all have to sort of balance their weight. I feel like in the first movie when they're going down 
like maybe the wood is kind of rotting, but they're basically just going down a ladder, right? But they're going around a circular ladder, and, and the tension there comes from the fact that Sean Bean's men are kind of like shooting at them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Here, it's just like they're all sort of on the same side. That it seems like Ed Harris is kind of with them. Like we know that he has that he sort of got them into trouble and sort of you know besmirched their ancestor's name. He's not going to like stab them in the back, right? He's going to he's going to be on their side. If this was the location that they were in, running away from Sean Bean, everybody would have died because there would have been too much going on and just crazy. Like I feel like they had to up the ante of the world around them because the actual like pursuer wasn't necessarily out to get them. Yeah, I think that's a good call. It's like now that we're all sort of on the same side, you have to make it a threat everyone needs to work together to overcome. And yeah, and then in the first movie where it was sort of just like this collapsing staircase and everyone was sort of just like running for their lives and it it was more chaotic. It just seemed like danger for the sake of adventure. And here it actually does the thing where an action sequence actually moves the story along even though it's like very late in the film, at least you get the sense that yeah, Ed Harris can be a good guy. You know, even though he wants to go first, he still can be good a good guy and wants to survive and, and wants Ben and his friends to live through this. Now, what's kind of interesting about the movie that we didn't see here is that when they have that ladder and they have to go up the ladder and then Ed Harris goes up and he pulls that like jewel-encrusted knife out of a corpse... Apparently, they shot a scene where he stabs John Voight in the back. Whoa. And the director eventually decided that it was too much for the movie. They felt that that crossed the line that he didn't want that character to cross. The reason that, like, throughout the rest of this ending, after he sort of swings across on on a rope with Helen Mirren, and they're there, and they have that little kiss... Like, the reason that he sort of disappears from a lot of the ending is because they had him, like, stabbed, they had, like, blood on his sweater, and, like, they're like, well, we couldn't just have him bleeding, you know, during the scene, so they just kind of cut around him. I felt all movie that Ed Harris was kind of a guy that I wasn't sure if he was, like, really a bad, bad guy, or just a guy who was sort of trying to get his way, because in a way, he's sort of like Cage, he's just trying to get his family's reputation back, right? I'm glad he didn't stab anybody because I liked I liked his sad it was sad but I liked the way his character ended up being I think they were right to cut that out especially because it's kind of rough for a PG movie it's a little dark yeah yeah I think that definitely would have been a step too far it, it doesn't seem necessary at all and it would have propelled the plot backwards to me I mean it would have been just another twist that we don't need and I like thinking of Ed Harris's character as sort of the obsessive guy that Nick Cage was from the first movie you know like, like he's just sort of been kind of brainwashed by his ancestors too that there's this legendary treasure that the south has you know your confederate ancestors you know have been looking for and I mean just think about growing up being indoctrinated with confederate type ideals right like this is your birthright type stuff and it's got to be messing with you trying to make a living as a <laughs> as an archaeologist or whatever so i yeah i start feeling for ed harris and, and i like the redemption that his final scenes give us one thing that's sort of weird is that everywhere they go along this journey somebody's just like oh it's a dead end we have to turn back and it's like how many movies do we have to watch how many movies do you have to make before you realize that a dead end is not actually a dead end like there's always a way to get down further you're not in the wrong place you just stuck your hand in an eagle rock to go underground you're not in the wrong place just keep going like don't get so discouraged 
Yeah, the one room had like a wagon wheel in the middle of it, right? <laughs> and they were like, what do we do? I'm like, just push the wheel. What I kind of like about the deeper and deeper aspect of their treasure hunting and, you know, the, the constant dead ends, it, it almost becomes part of the joke at this point for me. You know, I'm, I'm laughing if they don't come up against like four dead ends in part three, like I'm going to want my money back. <laughs> I, I'm getting like a laugh. It's like the first one, but it's more. Instead of just going through a wall, we have to go underwater and like around the tilt world and all that kind of stuff with this keep going deeper and deeper they're getting into problems where like the kids in the theater could probably solve it so they're probably they show that wheel in that first room pretty prominently i think it's sort of dumb for kids to get excited about you know i'm also thinking after this film i saw a movie called indiana jones and kingdom of the crystal skull and it has a very similar type temple in the ending you know instead of water they sort of go down like this sandy quick sandy staircase and then at the end you know someone has to stay behind so that they can get out i think this does it better than that ended up doing it and i don't know i'm getting like a similar vibe i like i like all this stuff i guess is what i'm trying to say <laughs> what's kind of funny is that they get to the city of gold and they walk down this one entrance john voigt and helen mirren just show up in a different entrance it's just like oh i guess there's just multiple ways to this lost treasure that nobody knows where it is all paths seem to lead to the city of gold they're so well, cute think... when they're on the top and they're like, hey, over there. And they're like, hi. <laughs> and they're all screaming and everyone's so happy. Oh, it's such a nice little moment. Someone had to have found the treasure previously if carving Mount Rushmore on the side of the mountain was a cover-up to cover up one of the clues, right? Like, at some point, someone must have known this treasure was there if they carved Mount Rushmore in the side of there, right? There were skeletons in there. Maybe then he pulled the knife out of that guy. I don't know if that's from when they were building this little underground temple. Maybe that was someone that came in. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't I don't especially care. Like, it doesn't matter at this point. I actually think it's a really cool treasure that they found, that it's sort of like this little underground golden temple town of ancient American Indians. I don't know. I, I was just glad that they didn't find, like, a queen alien, like, inside one of those temples <laughs> and a bunch of predators started, like, some kind of rite of passage around them. And I like that we kind of get here at the end that Ed Harris kind of apologizes. He's like, look, I did this for family. I didn't. I never intended to like ruin your family's name, but I needed your help to get here. I just want to get my family the respect it's due. I'm sorry I smeared your great-great-granddaddy's good name. It seemed like the only way to get you in on the hunt. But this was a chance for the Wilkinson family to make its mark on history. To find the city of gold. To be remembered. And it's kind of like not the best way to get that, but also like he had honorable intentions. It's sort of like a beginning of a redemption for him, that he's finally admitting that he's doing the right thing. And then not too much later, after he punches Nick Cage to try to escape himself, he eventually sacrifices himself to get him out. So, like, he's sort of, he's there, he's happy, he's relieved that he's going to finally get his family's good name back, or just give them the respect that they deserve. Even though he took sort of a bad route to get there, you can sort of see why he did what he did. Yeah, again, I think, like, he has just as much right that Ben had in the first film. You know, like, it was his birthright, basically, to find this place. And I can understand how obsession would lead to kind of any means necessary for this kind of guy. And, and it is really nice at the end here that they pick a side for him here at the end, for sure, where it's like, no, like, he is a good guy. He's going to go out saving everybody, right? And, you know, because of that, they are going to give him his credit because it is due to him. That's how he'll be remembered. But the dam bursts and the water, the room starts to flood. And someone needs to stay, and that's when he punches Cage. Cage is the first to sacrifice himself, sort of, right? He tells Diane Kruger, he's like, make sure my parents get out. 
And then, like, what almost feels like where there should be a kiss here, there's no kiss. It's like the movie never knows when romantic moments should come. It feels like a kiss here belongs more than it did in the end of the first movie, but maybe not. I don't know. They're kind of back together, but it's just like, they just move on. Like, Cage is more concerned with his family or with his parents than he is with Diane Kruger. I almost teared up at that part. He was really convincing when he was like, make my parents leave. Make my parents leave. It was so sad. I don't think a kiss would have been appropriate. It would have ruined his concern for his parents. I wonder if they're trying to do something where it's like, oh, finally, I'm not thinking of myself. This is what you wanted me to be all along kind of thing. Like, I'm listening to you. Like, I don't know if that's what they were going for, but I think they wanted to have a moment between them where if they survive this, they're getting back together. You know, like, I think that's what they were going for, where Cage has started to say, look, I know I've been a jerk or something. And Diane Kruger being like, okay, like, maybe if we get through this, maybe I'll take him back. They do sort of get back together because ed harris is the one who sacrifices himself that well what happens like his mom gets trapped right and cage swims over to help her out and then he gets stuck and so ed harris sacrifices everybody's like bending over backwards to sacrifice themselves <laughs> and be the one that dies here in the in this like, little tunnel yeah the whole temple starts coming apart really like the flood is causing uh, internal rock slide too so things are just being destroyed and people are just getting pushed around all over that little room and his parents sort of get washed away under the under the door in the current and he gets knocked under the door too so ed harris needs to i guess he he's the only one who's still near the big wheel thing so i guess cage is like you know i'm crushed or something like if nothing if you don't do anything we're all gonna die and and that's when ed harris is like i'll stay behind I'll, i'll be the i'll be the one i wrote that he was a weird bad guy but rest in peace weird bad guy he didn't survive the rock either, did he? No, he always dies. Okay. He also had good intentions there, kind of, too. He's always got yeah. good intentions. He's always, like, in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> that he's got the good intentions and bad plans. Yeah, he just doesn't think it out all the way, right? Like, he, he, he's he got the right idea, not the right way of going about it. We're consistent once again at the end here, where Harvey Cattell's like, look what we just found. He's like, I don't care what you found. Like, you kidnapped the president. Like, you can't just get away with this. <laughs> Someone's got to get arrested. <laughs> exactly. And they go, and then they sort of get a presidential pardon. The president is just like, I didn't see him kidnap me. I saw him save my life when the door was going to close behind me. I think everything's fine. Like, yes, sir. All right, sir. They all know what happened, but the president's like, I'm the president. Like, what are you going to do? Like, I know about the book. (laughs) I don't know why the president didn't say that right away. There was no need. I mean, I guess for the movie, there was a need for the FBI to be chasing Cage. But the president earlier... He is. Someone said he was a tattletale, and he's right. Because the president (laughs) could have been like, oh, yeah, like, he led me out of this tunnel, and then he went to find help, and I just never found him again. He should have just been like, that was acclaimed treasure hunter Ben Gates showing me a secret entrance underneath of this place for my birthday gift, right? Like, maybe he needed Ben to have more motivation to find the treasure faster, so he put out, like, an APB on him. Like, this guy is a president kidnapper. Like, look out for him everywhere. I don't know. Maybe... It's just more incentive for him to find the treasure faster. (laughs) I guess, but then Cage does the good thing in the end. He gives Mitch Wilkinson and the family credit that he does what he said he was going to do. The president's like, did you do what I asked with page 47? Which I guess we're going to find out what page 47 is in the next movie. I don't know, like, where you can go from, go up from here. Like, instead of stealing a declaration, instead of kidnapping the president, like, what's more sacred in American history than those? (laughs) If we get a page 47 in the next movie, we're not going to get an international movie. Probably, because it seems like it's an American secret if it's in that book. I don't know. I, I kind of feels like, okay, here's a back door if we want to make a sequel, but 
we don't need to go with this one. It, it, just, it could also just be like an inside joke between him and the president, and they can refer back to that in the third or fourth movie. Maybe they want to use the Book of Secrets for the rest of the films, maybe not. Where can you go from here? Maybe he's got to kill Hitler. I mean, I'm really stretching my brain for what he could possibly do. I'd love to see him out of the country, if possible, but you do need to sort of root it in America to begin with. Have him check out the Alamo's basement, and let's start it from there. And then we sort of get the little bit of a happy ending, right, where everybody sort of gets their resolution. And every sort of resolution has something relatively degrading to women. That they have, they're in the City of Gold, and Helen Mirren is acting like a crazy person, making sure that these people whose job it is to transport these artifacts are doing it right. We have Riley, who finally gets the girl... So that's sort of like the best, but the girl is sort of still like an object that he attained. Yeah. And then we have this speech at the end between Cage and Diane Kruger where they're talking about getting back together. And like once again, he's making fun of her and degrading her and saying, oh, you said the word so, you know, I can't get back together with you. So, uh, the tea tables. Yes, I'm going to have the movers bring them to you next week. Actually, I was going to say you can keep them. And... Maybe you could come and move back in with me? No, you use the word so. So? So when you say so, it means you're angry. Sometimes. And then sometimes it doesn't. It's sort of like a puzzle. And you're so good at puzzles, I'm sure you'll figure it out. Ugh. Well, at least she uh, defended herself for a second before caving in and asking him to move back into the house. Poor Dr. Abby Chase. Uh, when they, I noticed when they escaped that giant seesaw thingy, Riley gets to safety and he's like, why couldn't a girl have seen me do that? And I'm like, the girl did see you do that. Dr. Chase was standing right there. Do you not recognize her as a woman or something? <laughs> I get it's sort of a figure of speech and everything, but it just stuck out as sort of inappropriate. Yeah, and then they're like, oh, by the way, like Riley gets his girl. He gets yep. a trophy. Like, uh, I was more concerned with, like, if Ed Harris died, how did they clear great-great-grandfather's name? You know, Ed Harris is dead. He couldn't be like, I made it up. It wasn't true. I, I still want to know, like, how the paper from tomorrow had the headline that says Gates' family member cleared of all treason. Really good question. I don't know. Maybe they just have to believe him. Maybe, maybe <laughs> now that, like, once you solve two international mysteries or historical finds or whatever, they're like, all right, like, yeah, your family's probably cool. Like, whatever, we're good. Well, I guess ultimately they'll find Ed Harris's crippled corpse in the drowning room. They'll be like, they didn't just murder this guy and leave him behind or something. I don't know, but it is sort of weird that while they're excavating all that gold, like, they're going to have to wheel out Ed, Ed Harris at some point. That's kind of the movie. I have one little weird kind of cage connection here. When they're doing that car chase in London, Ed Harris steals a car from a guy. And apparently the actor who played that guy... The guy who got his car stolen is the same guy who got his car stolen by Sean Connery in The Rock. And I don't know if that's just like a Jerry Bruckheimer connection. It's weird that these two Nick Cage, Ed Harris, Jerry Bruckheimer movies, guy is basically just plays guy who has car stolen in two different movies. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It's pretty random. I got one that, I mean, it's a stretch. I mean, this is like one of the stretchiest stretches I've ever tried to make, but I'm going for it. Okay, so in actual like American history, after John Wilkes Booth shot the president, he, he jumps on a horse, and you see him in this movie kick a guy to the ground. And that actually happened in real life. And the guy that he kicked to the ground, his name was Peanut. 
And it just got me thinking of the Ant Bully, where we had Peanut the Destroyer. <laughs> so I don't know if you want to keep that Jesus in. Christ, Mike. You're, <laughs> I think you're losing your mind. It's a side effect of doing the show, I think. I think you're listening to Cage uh, grasping too much. Now you're doing it, too. But it's good. <laughs> it's passionate. This movie was nominated for some awards, nothing super major. It was nominated for Best Motion Title Graphics at the Golden Trailer Awards, Best Movie at the MTV Movie Awards. Really? Uh, Diane Kruger was nominated for Choice Movie Actress in an action-adventure movie at the Teen Choice Awards. And it was nominated for Worst Actor and Worst Supporting Actor at the Razzies. So the Razzies do like a year. So I mean, it's not like they're necessarily their roles in this movie, but Cage and John Voight's 2007 year... Not a great year, according to the Razzies. But luckily for them, Eddie Murphy won Worst Actor and Worst Supporting Actor and Worst Supporting Actress for Norbit. So (laughs) he sort of covered the board there. Some people talk about the EGOT. Other people talk about the Murphy. The EGOT? The EGOT? (laughs) There you go. So that's all I have to say about National Treasure Book of Secrets. Melissa, is anything else on your list that you want to talk about that you want to cover? I forgot to talk about the music, which seemed much louder and far more annoying than it was in the first movie. All of that oh, background <laughs> adventure music uh, yeah. is really pissing me off. You know when I, I started laughing like a, when they were breaking into Abby's house, because it wasn't Ben's house at that point. So when they're doing that little first sort of mini sneaking in thing, they were playing the theme, like a sneaky version of it. I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and like They just played it at varying volumes throughout the film, depending on how tense the situation was. I was like, oh, jeez. <laughs> Mike, anything you want to cover that we didn't cover? No, I think we covered everything. Thing. I, I'm fingers crossed for part three. That's all I'll say. If it happens, I mean, if it happens, it's scheduled to happen ten years after this movie, so who knows what the status of anything will be like. We'll see. I think it'll be cool to see Nick Cage in, like, a legitimate blockbuster again, you know? Because I feel like he's doing a lot of straight-to-DVD or indie movies like Joe lately. I don't know when the last time... I mean, guess I guess starting next year, he's going to be in a bunch of stuff that's sort of bigger, right? Snowden and Army of One and these other movies. It just seems like it's been a while. Maybe since Ghost Rider 2 or The Crudes that he did like a gigantic maybe hundred million dollar movie so it'll be cool to see him back in like a bona fide great huge movie like National Treasure 3 yeah, and, and I always just feel kind of shortchanged when they stop at two. It's like, let's just, you know, close out the trilogy at least, right? Like, there's been trilogies for less enjoyable properties, in my opinion, right? Like, they've made fours and fives of certain franchises that I can't believe they're still going. Yeah, at least the third National Treasure, you know, I don't think we'll ever get him as Ghost Rider again. So let him have this franchise and let's see if we can keep it going even more. <laughs> Thank you, Melissa, for joining us for National Treasure 2. You will be back for Ghost Rider 2 and National Treasure 3 if it ever happens. So if you like Melissa, I guess root for National Treasure 3 to actually happen. (laughs) Thanks for having me. For all things Cage Club, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews, find past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. All things Cage at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that's Melissa Lynham, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club. Cage Club.